Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, the most anticipated exhibition of the fall, Picasso Sculpture at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. The exhibition surveys the sculpture Picasso made over a 62-year period, from 1902 to 1964, and includes 150 works. The exhibition is in member previews starting today and opens to the public on September 14th. It'll remain on view through February 7th, 2016. My guests are two of the show's co-curators, MoMA Chief Curator of Painting and Sculpture Ann Temkin, and her MoMA colleague Anne Umland. Temkin's previous exhibitions have included retrospectives of Barnett Newman and Constantine Brancouch, and MoMA exhibitions of work by Klaus Oldenburg, Ellsworth Kelly, as well as 2010's Abstract Expressionist New York. Umland has recently curated major shows of Jean Miro and René Magritte. On the second segment, Pulitzer Arts Foundation curator Tamara Schenkenberg returns to the program to give us her final take on Fred Sandback's 64 three-part pieces. You may recall that this is the sandback that is comprised of three lines of yarn that is stretched individually across three adjacent spaces, and that Sandback created the work to have 64 different permutations. Each week since May, the Pulitzer has realized a different permutation of the work. This is the first time the work has been exhibited since 1975 when it was shown in Munich. The show closes this weekend. But first, Ann Temkin and Ann Umland. After the break. The Hammer Museum presents Mark Bradford Scorched Earth, the artist's first solo museum exhibition in Los Angeles. Comprising 12 paintings, including a large-scale work on the Hammer's lobby wall and a sound installation titled Spider-Man, this new body of work refers to formative moments in the artist's life and contemplates the body in crisis. Scorched Earth brings together Bradford's artistic practice, social activism, and history as a native Angelino. On view June 20th to September 27th, 2015. Visit hammer.ucla.edu. Member previews start today for Picasso Sculpture at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Join today at moma.org join, and you'll be able to see it first, before the show opens on Monday, September 14th. Featuring over 100 of Picasso's revolutionary three-dimensional works, along with works on paper and photographs, this sweeping survey is the first in nearly half a century to focus on Picasso's lifelong fascination with sculpture. Don't miss it. Find out more at moma.org and plan your visit today. And we're back. Ann Temkin and Ann Umland, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Picasso's sculptures have been less examined by art historians, especially American art historians, than have his paintings. And as you both note in the introductory essay of the catalog, the sculptures were in, in, in many ways rather less considered by the artist himself. I'm guessing that as you've undertaken this project, you've occasionally found yourselves thinking about the reasons for that, about why Picasso maybe spent less time examining his, his sculpture history than his painting history. Well, I, I think this is Anne Umlin jumping in on that one. And I, I hope what we conveyed is that less that Picasso spent a lesser degree of time examining the history of his sculpture, but rather that he had a very deeply personal, intimate relation with, with many of them. And one of the reasons that they, for a long period of time, were lesser known and relatively unexamined is because he kept so many of them with him, living with them, sort of like members of his 
family. And and as a result of that, it really wasn't until the, the, the 60s that that body of work was introduced en masse to, to the world in a series of shows that began in Paris in 1966 and then traveled to London in a modified form and then was shown here at the Museum of Modern Art in 1967. And so that was really the first time that a large group of Picasso sculptures were, were set forth in public view. Let's pull that out a bit. The catalog is full of pictures of Picasso living with his own sculpture at many of his homes. What, what do we see in those pictures? And when we talk about Picasso living with a sculpture, could you maybe give us some more detailed or specific example of just kind of how everywhere they seem to be? Yes, this is Ann Temkin speaking. It was the farthest you could imagine from the way an art collector would live with Picasso's sculptures. He often said, Picasso, that he wanted when he became very rich to live like a poor man. And he did that in his homes. He had, by the end of his life, very vast and stately residences, but he was careful for them to look like a college dorm or something like that. They were crowded, completely devoid of any kind of elegant furniture. And he outed the sculptures together with each other and also with houseplants or, you know, books and paintings. Often they'd be leaning against paintings, things like dried plants or bullfight posters. And you see in those photographs that he actually loved that chaos. And his wife, for the last decade and a half or so of his life, apparently tried hard to make it otherwise, but it was just impossible. <laughs> Indoors and out, in fact. That's right. You know, there are a lot of great reasons to buy the exhibition catalog, but but certainly one of the best is these pictures, many of which I'd never seen before, of, of sculpture and Picasso's homes indoors and out the way, the way you just described. When an artist is best known as a painter and not as a sculptor, I think all of us have a tendency, or many of us have a tendency, to think of his or her sculpture in the context of his or her painting. Is that a fair thing to do with Picasso's sculpture, or should we, or should maybe this show be the beginning of us breaking ourselves of that habit? Oh, this is Anne Omland. I don't know that it's a habit that needs to be broken with. I think there is, it's fair to say, there is an ongoing intimate relation between Picasso's work in three dimensions and in two, whether it's painting or graphic work, or I can't think of anything else. Collage. <laughs> painting or graphic, collage, collage, fine. But I think that what the show sets out to do is to say, if you decide to look at the sculpture only, right, if you highlight that, spotlight that, what can we learn from that sort of an approach? There been there was a wonderful show at the Tate in 1994 called Picasso Sculptor Painter that looked specifically at the interrelationship between paintings and sculptures in his practice. And that was a wonderful revelatory show. But I think the ambition of this project is is different. It's to take the sculpture out and display it in a proper sort of space with lots of room to contemplate it and see see what you learn from that. And I know, I guess the other thing to say is that one thing we thought about in terms of conceiving or conceptualizing the, the show was a, was this very deliberate decision not to put paintings on the walls because 
somehow if when you have things in the same same space people will gravitate towards the paintings as opposed to paying attention to the sculptures and the latter is what our goal is to have happen so we're being a little evangelical i think this is ann timken and not giving people the opportunity for the sculpture to be something a person backs up into when he's looking or she's looking at a painting, as Ad Reinhardt famously said. And the other magnificent thing about, of course, having this exhibition at MoMA, on the fourth floor at MoMA, is you can walk up the stairs and be on the fifth floor at MoMA and see any number of paintings by Picasso, which are intricately and intimately related to the sculptures one floor below. Are you putting anything up on the fifth floor specifically because the sculptures are on the fourth? A couple of things, yes. Such as? A couple of paintings. For example, in the period around the time of the Demoiselle d'Avignon, Picasso makes for a very brief time wood carvings. And when you look at the paintings of those couple of years, it almost feels like they're paintings of wooden sculptures or of African masks. And so at the moment, we don't happen to have one of those on the wall, even though we do have them in the collection, or we have one on the wall, I should say, and not two, and we're going to put them both on, that kind of thing. Well, let's jump into the show itself. The, the, the first sculptures in the exhibition date to 1902, and thanks to abundant castings in bronze, many of them are, are the best-known Picasso sculptures in America. In, in a really interesting passage in the catalog, hint at the importance of Medardo Rosso to Picasso, an influence that, so far as I can recall, isn't documentable through Picasso's writings, but, but that certainly seemed to pop up in the work. And I, the way you get into the Rosso question the catalog is a suggestion that in the spring of 1902, which is the year in which Picasso, which is the year with which your show starts, that Picasso may have read Rosso's answer to a magazine asking him the question, can and should sculpture compete with painting? Could you tease out the Ross, the possible relationship between Rosso's answer and, and Rosso's work and Picasso? Sure. This is Ann Temkin. I think the point that we really wanted to make with those examples of his early readings or visits to exhibitions by 19th century sculpture sculptors is this idea that the conventional relationship of a painter and a sculptor as two completely separate occupations is perhaps an erroneous assumption for us when we're considering turn of the century artists, and that already at this time there were predecessors like Rosso, like Degas, like Gauguin. Gauguin, who were of such importance to Picasso, who as a trained painter, but not at all as a trained sculptor, was beginning to absorb and, and beginning to think about in relation to his own work. And Umland speaking is just part of thinking through the question of what prompted Picasso to first want to want want to work three-dimensionally. That's sort of what was was out there, what engaged his attention, what models did he have in in mind. And so back to what Anne was saying, that that quote from Rosso in a way was a wonderful way of encapsulating that type of a question and that prevalence of, of a painter sculptor model, which of course you can go, you know, even further back in history, someone Picasso would have been well aware of was Michelangelo. 
there's there's one sculpture ahead of a woman that is Fernand, Picasso's lover at the time from 1906. It's a pretty small sculpture. It's in the show as a bronze that is particularly Rosso-like. Well, I think that one particularly Rosso-like, and I think in person it also makes you think a bit of of Degas, Degas as well in terms of the way that the, the textures on the surfaces are rendered. I think that's one where it's believed that he could have pressed a, a fabric into the moist clay to create some some of the patterning on the face. So I think one of the things about the, the sculpture sort of up until 1907 is that it has the ghosts of a num- number of people, Rousseau or Rodin or Degas or, or Gauguin, and that it's when you get to 1909 or when you get to 1912 and the Cubist years in particular, that Picasso just is going places that no one went before. One of the things that jumps out to me is that in in, in 06, 07, these years where on canvas, Matisse and Picasso are having their first really intense engagement where, where Matisse's blue nude is prompting Picasso's Les Demoiselles, and then they go back and forth for a couple more years. You know, in this period, Matisse is, is deeply involved with making sculpture. Of course, sculpture led, the uh, destroyed sculpture led to blue nude. Picasso, as, as you note in the catalog, is less involved with sculpture in these years. He's, he's mostly content to engage with three-dimensional objects at, say, the Louvre, rather than in his own studio. Do either of you have any thoughts or guesses on why Matisse's painting drew in Picasso and Brock and others during these years, but why Picasso, the sculptor, kind of left Matisse's sculpture alone? Yeah, Anne Temkin speaking. What's interesting to me about the way in which Picasso approaches sculpture, and this has so much to do with the fact that he was self-taught and didn't have a sculpture studio himself until he was in his 50s, is the fact that it's almost like he's thinking of sculpture not as a sculptor, but as an artist. And there's very little meaning for him in what was the definition of what is a sculpture that he would then follow. So even with the things that were relatively traditional within his work, what he what he's looking for in sculpture, I would say, similarly to his lack of training, would be, no, he's not necessarily interested in looking at what his peers are doing. And I think it's very telling, for example, that he collected many, many paintings by his peers or by his slight elders and Matisse very important among them. But he had almost no sculpture by those artists where he was an incredible collector of sculpture, of course, was for African and oceanic work. So in the catalog, you note the many ways in which Picasso innovated with sculpture, including introducing space for the first time as a sculptural material, paints wall reliefs that are simultaneously painting and sculpture. He includes industrially made commercial materials such as spoons into sculpture. I could keep going and going. But the one way in which his sculpture seems tied to painting, if you will, is that he pretty much, with maybe one exception, intends his sculpture to be seen from a single vantage point, head on. And... In a way, this is kind of innovative. I mean, when we think of, 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 of Degas or Bayer, they were making sculptures that were intended to be circumnavigated to see, whereas Picasso is making sculptures with one or two exceptions that are looking out at the viewer from a single point of view 
This is Ann Umland. I guess I guess I would I'm not sure I would ag- ag- agree with that generalization. There is the kneeling woman combing her hair from 1906, which that certainly ended up being more of a, a bas relief and something related to the wall. But the jester or the even the little little seated woman from 1902 or certainly by the time you get to the apple or head of Fernand. The apple is the other one. Yeah, they are definitely rewarding to circumnavigate. And I think even the, the you know, I don't disagree. I think Picasso is constantly playing with the conventions of what belongs to a picture and what activates space and how can I mess around with those those two categories. But a fixed vantage point, that just doesn't ring ring true somehow to the physical experiences of the works to me. I mentioned those those sculptures Picasso's making in the mid nineteen tens that include the spoons. They are spoons on top of, of glasses of, of absinthe. And in this period, in in, in nineteen fourteen Picasso makes, and this is right after the guitars, Picasso makes a whole lot of sculptures with glasses, sculptures that are built around a, a, a glass. Why? And Timken, it's a perverse sort of bravado virtuosic thing, right? To make something transparent out of something that's either bronze or wood and as opaque as can be. And may I leave, and it's also just to take as your subject a container of something that is liquid and to render it solid is just part of this ongoing witty game. I think to stand in front of those absinthe glasses is to sort of, they're just constant reversals, right? Between things that are liquid, made solid, between things that are transparent, that are made opaque, between surfaces that should be planar, but that are cut into and that you see through, or even that the idea of seeing through, which is something you would associate with a with a glass, Picasso makes literal by cutting through the exterior surface of his work and revealing its core. And part of that too goes back to that I, this idea that is happening in that moment about introducing space as a material into his sculpture. And I think the glasses, too, are a great, great way of thinking about the subject matter of these works, right? And and that he's finding shapes in the world with objects that you touch and handle and yet are inherently volumetric. The sort of the with the guitars, that's one such shape, and a, a glass is another that even does it better because it can be filled, as I said, with, with a liquid, which is counter to everything you think about when you think of, of a sculptural form. He even extends that idea of playing with with a volumetric space, if you will, in the two sculptures that feature both glass, both a glass and, and dice, a, a single die in each sculpture. What does he do to those those dice and how does it kind of function within the space and sculpture he creates? Well, this is Anne Umland again. I think for me, one of the really funny thing about those dice die, in on occasion a die and another pairs of dice, is that he renders them three-dimensionally, but he subjects them 
to the laws of perspective, you know, so they have orthogonal slants that are something that you'd need to create an illusion of a three-dimensional object on a painted, painted two-dimensional surface, but he m realizes that in a solid three-dimensional form. And I think throughout the objects in the gallery devoted to the cubist years, sort of 1912 to 1915, that you are made aware of that constantly. There's sort of laws of or spatial rules that are pictorial being applied to three-dimensional objects. And the most literal sort of way of looking at that back and forth is, as you mentioned at the start, is the prevalence during those years of objects that hang on the wall yet extend out into space. So that the sort of thing that provoked that wonderful anecdote that Andre Selmo recounted about visitors to Picasso's studio coming in and seeing the sheet metal guitar and saying, what is it? You know, is it a, uh, does it hang on the wall? Does it sit on a pedestal? Is it a painting or a sculpture? And Picasso proclaiming, oh, you know, it's nothing. It's the guitar. And somehow that gets at this wonderful in-between hybrid character of what he accomplishes in those years. Yeah, and, and Timken speaking, when you get into that gallery, the second of the exhibition, you're really looking at the work of a painter as much as that of a sculptor, because these absinthe glasses have these fantastic colored surfaces, each of them different from the other, full of red, blue, yellow, and green polka dots. And the constructions, the reliefs on the wall, similarly are wood, but painted all of these incredibly vibrant colors. So he, he is absolutely hybridizing. When we get out of the World War I years, there's a gap in Picasso's sculpture practice. So from early 1915 until 1924, he's not making sculptures. So just to, to put that in a little bit of timeline context for listeners, in 1913, Picasso does guitars. In 1914, he's making these sculptures. We're talking about using glasses, I mean, a glass and a sculpture and absinthe spoons. In 1915, he makes a cubist, a very cubist, really, sculpture of a violin and, and a bottle on a table and a sheet metal construction of a violin, and then no sculpture until 1924. Any idea why not? And Timken, at that time, he's very much involved with the theater. And you can make the argument that he sort of exerted his three-dimensional energies in that way with the costumes and sets for Diaghilev and the others he worked with during that period. But it's also very, very true throughout his life that the sculptural involvement is particularly episodic, whereas with painting, it almost never came to a stop, painting or drawing. So there's that 1924 sculpture, and then there's another gap until 1928, when Picasso makes two of his better-known or best-known sculptures, uh, Metamorphoses uh, 1 and 2. And these are two really Jean Miro-like sculptures. And then when we move into 1928, when Picasso is making these these new iron wire sculptures, there seems to be a, a, a good bit of Miro there too. Maybe, maybe think of Miro's 1927 painting, capital P painting, at the Philadelphia Museum. So I guess this is mostly a question for Ann Umland, because in 2009, you organized a fascinating show called Joan Miro, Painting and Anti-Painting, 1927 to 1937 for the Modern. And it's a show that looked at Miro going beyond traditional painting to make new kinds of paintings that 
incorporated feathers and objects on, on the canvas at about this time. So I've noticed that over the years, Picasso scholars and biographers have kind of suggested Pierre Dex, for example, that at about this time, Picasso is looking at Miro a lot, but no one really seems to quite resolve the idea. So as as the expert on, on Miro of this period, Anne Umland, is there some kind of visual or other discourse there? I think with Miro and Picasso, there is an ongoing visual discourse or a back and forth. Just when Miro first got to Paris in 1920, the very first person he went to visit was Pablo Picasso. There is a difference, you know, in, in age between the two of them. I certainly think that they're aware of each other's work. Miro also is showing, you know, that by point with the surrealists. The surrealist interest in Picasso is something that comes to the, the fore in the late 20s as well. So, and certainly, I suppose one could draw formal comparisons between the drawings in space, which was what Kahnweiler called those wonderful wire-welded figures of Picasso's and works by Miro from 23-24 on, where the line is so calligraphic or so animated or so prevalent a part of the composition. You know, I think it, no one has really gone back, as far as I know, and gone step by step through the two's career in the way that, say, they've done Matisse and Picasso. But it, it's right out there for some enterprising PhD student to do, because I think that the connections are very, very real. And I think this is about when Miro starts making his first sculpture, too, 28-ish. Yes, the Spanish Dancer series from 28, for sure. But those little metamorphosis sculptures, it was funny to hear you, you describe them as Miroesque, because I suppose you could think of that. But then there's a wonderful 1930s series of drawings by Miro, which come after the Picasso sculptures that are the, for lack of a better term, the spitting image of, of them. So I just think it's great. It's, it's great. It's clearly it is clearly a real conversation. When I looked at the pictures in the catalog, my first thought was of how little I knew about the relationship between the two of them and the discourse in work between the two of them. Yeah, and Hemken, to state the obvious as well, they're both Spaniards in Paris, right? And it's at exactly this moment, too, that Picasso renews his very old friendship with Julio Gonzalez and begins to work with him welding metal sculptures. And I think we all so associate Picasso with France. And of course, that's where he spent the last 50 years of his life. But in heart and certainly his accent, for example, when speaking, you know, was still very much that of a Spaniard. And it also seems to be maybe a time in Picasso's life where he's willing to accept Spaniards as peers, whereas maybe with Juan Gris, he was differently willing to do that earlier on. Don't know. Yeah, that I don't know. I mean, the only other, this is Anne Umland again, person I would throw into the mix of interesting artists to think about Picasso and sculpture with is, is Giacometti as well at this, this moment of artists affiliated with the, with the Surrealist camp. And your catalog chronicles their regular visits to each other's studios going on into the Warriors. And I think there's going to be a big show. If I'm not um, in Paris, the Musée Picasso might be doing a Giacometti Picasso show next fall. 
My guests are Ann Temkin and Ann Umland. We'll be right back after a break. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents After Picasso, 80 Contemporary Artists, on view September 19th through December 27th. After Picasso is a major exhibition examining Picasso's potent legacy and ongoing impact on several generations of artists. This vibrant show fills the entirety of the Wexner Center's galleries and includes a diverse array of work from international talent such as Andy Warhol, Louise Lawler, Henri Cartier-Bresson, Amy Selman, Haimo Zobring, Jasper Johns, and many more. Originally organized by the Dijkter Holland and called Picasso and Contemporary Art, this exhibition is making its only stop in the United States at the Wexner Center. For more information, go to wexarts.org. One of the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth's most significant holdings is its comprehensive collection of works by Robert Motherwell, one of the figureheads of abstract expressionism, the most important movement in the history of American art. A selection from this collection is on view now, featuring work from Motherwell's Open, Drunk with Turpentine, Elegies, and Collage series. For The Modern's exhibition schedule, visit themodern.org. And now back to my conversation with Ann Temkin and Ann Umland. So, so after these iron wire sculptures at, at the very end of the 1920s, there are some events that, I don't know if this is the right word, but seem to have instigated Picasso's next thing in sculpture. First was his attempt to earn a committee's approval for his designs for memorial to his friend Guillaume Apollinaire, which were you know, kind of a series of never-ending attempts, almost literally. Next was his purchase of a country estate that had some former horse stables that Picasso seems to have immediately realized would be a great sculpture studio. And the third you mentioned a moment ago was was Picasso's relationship with Julio Gonzalez. Is there a way of pulling out of each of those things and discussing how they were impactful, or is this all happening at once and it wasn't one, then one, then one that, that, that motivated him or informed him? And Hemkin, no, I think you can say one, two, three. Actually, I think you can say one for the commission to invent a monument in memory of Guillaume Apollinaire for his gravestone in the Père Lachaise Cemetery. I would say two to getting together again with Julio Gonzalez to weld, probably because he decided that that would be a good technical method for such a work, as he, as you say, continuously tried that's the committee of one of his ideas and then three in 1930 so a couple of years after he had begun working with gonzalez purchasing that chateau in normandy not entirely but certainly having a lot to do with the fact that those stables would make for him for the first time incredible sculpture studios is there anything in particular that those that that studio in the country really enables is it is it scale is it something else Anne Umlin here I think the a primary thing is just a space dedicated to making objects in the round <laughs> maybe one could say you know this is half joking it was a space he hadn't had a chance to fill up yet so he still had room to maneuver in there are accounts of how he had found gonzalez's metal working shop um somewhat of a cramped quarters 
and they're just the the work suggests that what he found in in Boisjolou was a yeah a space a space in which he could set up trestles and create volumetric objects on a monumental scale really really for the first time and of course the other key thing that seems to happen in in Boisjolou is his em- embrace of plaster or his the the is really working with that and it goes on to become sort of his signature material there partially because of those wonderful photos that Brassai takes in 1932 that show so many of the plasters situated in those spaces but there Picasso seems to find in plaster a material that is easier to manipulate that he can work with more quickly than with clay it dries fast you can incise it or carve it or mold it. You can go back to add to something after a period of time passes. And I think that somehow that, that in terms of the work, proved to be incredibly liberating for his, his sculptural imagination. I want to come back to those plaster pieces in a moment. But in, in, in late 29, 1930, one of the Gonzalez era pieces is Woman in the Garden, which is a, a welded and painted iron sculpture with two passages that seem pretty extraordinary to me. One is the two plant leaves that kind of pop up as if they were something out of a Matisse painting from the late 1940s. And then the flip of hair of of the woman in the garden that almost appears to be caught in the wind. And, and I, I, when I look at it, I kind of have to remember it's not moving. I mean, it really, it's a distinct passage. I don't think there's anything like that in like those two things in Picasso's sculpture and maybe maybe in other sculpture of the period and I wonder if those are two passages that have stuck in either of your heads too and Temkin yes they're great and one of the things we know about them is from Julio Gonzalez that whereas this is a sculpture that he had made many sketches for in his sketchbooks there was at the time he was working with Gonzalez in Gonzalez's metalworking studio, a lot of improvisation. And so, for example, those two big philodendron leaves kind of sticking out almost as if they were, as you're saying, you know, growing out of her, were kind of done with that joyfulness of on the spot, let's do this. So I think a lot of the animation that you're feeling when you look at the sculpture is paralleling the way in which it was made. The other thing to remember about this moment, I think, is that the interest among the Surrealists in particular in non-Western sculptures traditions, and especially, say, for example, that of Africa and Oceania, is very strong. So when you think about these pieces in terms of for example, African masks, like when you think of those spikes coming out of the back of her that are her hair, you know, clearly Picasso's paying a great deal of attention to those sort of models. And so Anne Umlin here, I hadn't thought of this before, but also taking on as a sculptural subject a, a plant form or, or organic matter or something that it, that's living is, a, again, I would think, something that really Picasso is one of the first to think of or that I, I can imagine. And that 
is maybe this is more far-fetched, connected in some way to his interest in African or oceanic art with objects that had a soul isn't the right word, that have a magic spirit, that have something, you know, that is animate and present about them with wanting his sculptures, this will sound hokey, but to have some sort of a, a, a life a life force and that that woman in a garden perhaps brings some of those ideas into sharp focus. You know, in, a, in, a, in roughly these years, 2930, 31, 32, there's maybe a fourth thing going on, and maybe not. But so in 1929, Matisse more or less stops painting for about five years. He, he makes some paintings in Tahiti and such, but but mostly shuts it down. And he travels abroad several times. And 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 one thing he does do in 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 the studio in France is make a lot of sculpture. And according to a couple of books, in 1930, a Parisian gallery launches a Matisse sculpture exhibition. Although I've I've looked and I can't find who or where. Gallery Pierre. Was it in, in 1930? I, I believe so. So then it did happen. So Picasso's engagement with Matisse on canvas in 31-32, when they effectively had dueling retrospectives at, at George Petit's gallery, has been you know much discussed, especially in, in Yves Alambois' show at the Kimball Art Museum a number of years ago. But is Picasso engaging Matisse sculpturally in these, these years as well, maybe even as early as the late 1920s? And Hemken, yes, he is. Yes, he is. And rivalry was a big motivating force for him to our great benefit. And when you look at those modeled plaster heads at, made at Boisjoloup, and you look, for example, at the heads of Jeanette that... Matisse's yes, head Jeanette. Yes, from many years ago, but that would have been in that 1930 exhibition. There's absolutely a great dialogue between them. So, yes... Picasso, as much as we think about him as this kind of isolated monumental genius, you know, in a way, nothing can be further from the truth. He was absolutely alert to what all the artists around him were doing. And he also, as we're talking about with Gonzalez, actually was very much a collaborator. And that comes through in sculpture more than anything else. The reclining bather of Picasso's from 1931 really looks like a kind of deflated uh, Aurora by Matisse from 1907, as if all of the air has been, or all of the insides have been sucked out of that Matisse and the figure has collapsed. Plaster, we mentioned plaster a moment ago in, in, in these years. What gets Picasso started in, in a different medium in plaster? I think it was a material that was pretty readily available, that was relatively light, that he could stockpile in large quantities, and that I, as I understand it, is something that's easy to work with. I never get a sense then of Picasso as a particularly patient sculptor. <laughs> or person. You know, or person for that matter. But instant gratification. Like he likes to see the results. And it seems as though plaster provided a means to that end when beginning to work volumetrically on a larger scale in the Boisjolais studios. Brassai, the photographer who began to photograph Picasso's sculptures in 1932 in Boisjolais, is full of marvelous insights and hopefully accurate quotations <laughs> of Picasso on the subject of sculpture. And one of he wrote a book called Conversations <laughs> with Picasso. Yes, and one of the delightful ones is him talking about Picasso 
really, really dismissing the idea of carving marble. For example, as Brancusi patiently did year after year, decade after decade. And the way Picasso put it was, what is there inherent in a piece of marble that suggests a form to you? Nothing. So why do you want to approach marble? And really, it's so telling because Picasso is telling you there that where he's concerned with sculpture, it's not really form for form's sake. It's always the content and the metaphor and, and the kind of rhyming of forms with something, you know, between the original source, whether it's plaster or a found piece of wood or welded sheet metal, and the idea he's trying to express. But the last thing he's trying to do is create something pure or ideal. Well, speaking of, of content and, and metaphor, one of the fun parts of the catalog for me was how in several spots, y'all kind of, I don't know, took aim at Duchamp is probably overstating it a bit, but there are a couple of times where you made a point of noting that art historians have assigned innovations or key moments in the history of sculpture to Duchamp when they could perhaps also have or better have assigned them to Picasso. Are there a couple works that are a particularly good example of that? I would say that maybe overstates our position. And yeah, <laughs> I hope it didn't come across yeah. that strongly. And it was more like adding Picasso to that very important discussion about the role of the everyday, right? Or the ordinary object within modern sculpture, the sculpture of the 20th century. And then at the same time, adding him to and trying to articulate what sets them apart because their approach, their commonality is in an approach to the everyday, but they go in very different directions. Bull's Head and the Venus of Gas are both from uh, the World War II era. Bull's Head 42, Venus of Gas 45 are probably the two clearest engagements with that. In terms of the pure ready-made, definitely. But it already gets super interesting back in 1913 and 14, right? When in 1913, Duchamp, without even yet calling what he has done a work of art, let alone a sculpture, puts the bicycle wheel on top of the kitchen stool. And then just a year later, there's Picasso putting the ready-made store-bought cheap absinthe spoon right onto his bronze. You know, it gets very interesting. Repeatedly doing it, in fact. I mean, making a whole... Yes, six. Little. <laughs> so sculpture is obviously important to Picasso during World War II and, and then... Um, also during the German occupation of France. How, how does that manifest itself? And why do you think sculpture was important for him to make during those years? Anne Umland here. That's, I'm sure we could answer that in so many different ways. So to, to begin, let's see. So he's living in occupied Paris. He has set sculpture aside for a bit after having to vacate the premises at Boisjoleux. I think there's something to be said about his wanting to re-engage with this very traditional way of, of, of making things, of making things to be in the world. It's certainly the moment where he starts to gather his sculptures ar around him in a way that is 
different from before. He has a number of the Boisjolu sculptures cast into bronze at this moment. And I know we talk about this in the catalog that it is a paradoxical time to be casting in bronze when that is essentially forbidden, that metal is supposed to be going towards the war effort. And so bar tops throughout this throughout Paris are being melted down, for example. Yes, exactly. And that Picasso in a clandestine fashion and incredibly bravely, in fact, is having his works cast into bronze at that moment. And as part of that, he then begins to make sculptures again of a very different emotional tenor from what had come before. There aren't as, as many, and those that there are are quite concentrated in their um, effective impact. Like two of the earliest, or the one of the earliest is the Death's Head from 1941. That is a Picasso's rendition of a skull with big gaping open eyes and that has an incredible weight and gravitas to it. And I think that carries through the other things in the Warriors, even the bull's head which on the one hand is this whimsical is not a good word for it, but that is so simple on the one hand, just an upended bicycle seat and those handlebars that Picasso seized on their metaphor potential to transform uh, or translate into that bull's head. Even that in person has an incredible gravitas uh, and sadness, sadness to it actually strike the sadness it's not sad it's just a very 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 powerful force majestic majestic even the cat from 1941 is wary in an acute and worried way or fearful way it's interesting and hemkin one of the things over these last few days as we've begun installing the show that we've noticed is that a work is in a good position when it makes us laugh For so much of his career, Picasso's sculptures really are funny, genuinely funny to look at. And that's absolutely not the case in the wartime gallery. That that can't Mm -hmm. we can't use that as as our cue for when to consider something correctly positioned. So is Picasso using sculpture and particularly sculpture and bronze as a conscious act of resistance? Conscious act of resistance, I can't say. We don't know what he was unconscious or conscious of, of course. But I do feel that he temperamentally certainly was absolutely averse to authority or fear of authority, right? (laughs) So um, that goes well with that. And it's very moving. There's just now really more and more art historical research coming out on this period of World War II. For example, one of the things um, that appeared a few years ago, published by the Centre Pompidou, is his correspondence with Christian Zervos, the person who was at the time publishing his catalog resume. And during those early 40s um, years, Zervos was one of the few people who stayed, few art world people who stayed in Paris, as Picasso did. And one of the very touching things to read in in the correspondence between Zervos and Picasso was Zervos telling him how he was going to give Mary Callery, an American sculptor living in Paris at the time and a friend of all of theirs, 
the manuscript of the second volume of the catalog resume of Picasso's work to bring with her when she went into New York, left Paris for New York, so that even if everything went completely badly, he would know, Zervos would know, and now Picasso would know that at least that second volume of the ca ca uh, catalog resume was safely deposited at the library of the Museum of Modern Art. Yeah, and this is Anna Amundsen. So that's that's in interesting to the point of Picasso thinking about uh, preservation too, right? And about about history and in a, a, a way, you know, at this moment when the world is falling falling apart, that's another way to to, to think about his um, interest in bronze casting at that moment. And then there's the other, like back to the Brassai conversations with Picasso. There's another passage where he talks about bronze, I think, right? And there's part of his interest in bronze too, is that it's another material transformation. And he talks about how with the bull's head in particular, I think how important it is that you see it both as a bull's head and as the bicycle seat and the handlebars. Flip -flop. Yeah. yeah, the flip-flop. And that bronze both retains those, in this case, retains those details so you can recognize the original materials and it bestows this almost magical uniformity on them, on these disparate things. So really with the exception of when we talked about Julio Gonzalez, I haven't brought up how the way in which Picasso's sculptural explorations, if you if, if you will, were so often encouraged by or maybe prompted by an outside facilitator. So in the late 1940s, we see it in Picasso's use of, of earthenware and ceramics, his meeting of George and Suzanne Ramey, who owned a ceramics workshop near Antibes. In the 50s and 60s, he met a man who owned a sheet metal company and starts making these sheet metal sculptures that, that are at the end of the show. Why do you think it was that these outside facilitators were sparks that set him set him off running? And Temkin here, there's every reason to believe that Picasso, as he sometimes claimed, was lazy. <laughs> Despite the fact that he's somebody who produced, I think I'm right in saying 4,500 paintings and several hundred sculptures and untold thousands of works on paper <laughs> during his lifetime. I think 700 sculptures is the number in the uh -huh. 150 uh -huh. of which are in the show. Yes. But there is, as we all know, just such as Anne and I know doing this exhibition, as a matter of fact, such a pleasure from having someone to do a back and forth with. And, and you can't really do that with painting, or certainly Picasso wouldn't have wanted to do that with painting. But with sculpture, in terms of the way that the technical assembly does, in many cases, not require the hand of the artist or the artist himself, as you know, Picasso lamented, wasn't even skilled enough to do it. He couldn't have been welding those sheets of sheet metal together as well as the fellow who had worked with sheet metal all his life and and he knew it and one of the very modern things of that last phase of picasso's career that resonates so closely with art being made today is this division between what is where is the where is the genius you know it's not as would have been thought of many centuries ago centered wholly or chiefly 
in the manual execution. Another element of Picasso's sculpture in the post-war years is his use of collage. And you note repeatedly in the catalog how much Picasso loved picking up junk. How, where, and why is he picking up junk? How does, why does he enjoy that? Well, Anne Umlin here, I mean, I think you could almost say yeah, he likes, he likes that from practically day one from those cheap metal absence spoons on. And it does become particularly pronounced once he moves to the south of France and he's living in the town of Valoris, which is a this ancient center for making ceramics and pottery, and that there are discarded materials from the pottery industry and dump heaps that, as Francois Gillot recounts, they would walk by every day on his way to the to the studio. And Picasso would, with his very particular way of looking at the materials of the world, pull things out that he thought he could put put to use. And throw them in a baby carriage, I think, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yes, that's how the, how the story is told. And I think back to what Anne was saying about, oh, I don't know, Mickey, about, about Picasso being lazy, but I, did, I think there's another, like he enjoys ready-made forms. There's another quote somewhere where the, um, they're, they're talking about the making of, of She-Goat, the 1950s sculpture that usually presides over the sculpture garden here at MoMA and is now coming indoors for the first time in a long time, whose ribs are made out of a found wicker basket. And thinking about how that let Picasso build up all those ribs just basically in one one fell swoop, as opposed to a more laborious, tedious type type of construction that has some of something, something to do with this in interest in scavenging and casting his eye about in an avaricious way for things that he could put to good use. Yeah, and Anne Temkin here, I think it also can be thought of in the context of his interest in the art of African and oceanic cultures, where the objects that would be inserted and incorporated into a mask or or a, an object had a kind of magical power, right? So the nails or the cowrie shells or the hair in these masks that he collected and, and loved so much weren't just there decoratively. They were there for their content in some way. And you feel that when Picasso is picking up some old piece of ceramic or taking the tennis balls off the tennis court at Boisjoleux to use as the eyes of the head of a warrior. He's he's taking not only the formal shape or material of that thing, but he's taking the life that that thing has lived. And there are stories, for example, that he tells, I forget in whose book, where he would mention how friends knowing this would bring him things that they thought he could use in his sculptures. And that was the last thing he wanted, you know, <laughs> he he wanted to be the font, the one to kind of find some almost like rejected something or other rather mm -hmm. than, you know, go ahead. Man. No, I'm sorry. I'm just nodding in a set because I'm thinking it's sort of the more abject, the, the more thrown away, the greater transformational power, right? The, the better for Picasso to show us like what he could do. There's some quote early on, well, about his... Cubist Papier Collets, where he says, oh, I forget 
now I can't remember the right quote, but it's about, you know, taking a newspaper and turning that into a bottle. Like, that's interesting, not just making a, a mimetic, you know, uh, image, image of a bottle to be able to transmute. It's almost alchemical a little bit. It's this very magician-ish thing, right? And yeah. And one of one of the greatest writers on this element um, in Picasso's work is the British, the late British art critic David Sylvester. And he made one of the most fantastic analogies that I've ever read about Picasso and speaking specifically about Picasso as a sculptor. He compares him to the fairy godmother in Cinderella and talks about transforming a pumpkin into a coach and mice into horses and so forth. And he says he even outdoes the fairy godmother because he doesn't turn a pumpkin into something logical than like a coach. You know, he turned something that would never make you think of the thing it was about to become into that thing. And I guess and and Umland here, I, I always when because we've talked about that quote before and think that but what Picasso even goes the fairy godmother one better because with him, you you see the pumpkin still, you know, in addition to the carriage. With the bull's head, you see the bicycle seat still, in a, you know, in addition to the bull's head. There is something about that making you see the two things virtually at one, once that is where his his magic resides. The last major body of work Picasso makes in sculpture is more or less this, this series of sheet metal sculptures, which you refer to as, quote, the most densely concentrated episode of sculpture making of Picasso's career. Why? Why did sheet metal, of all things, work for him? Does it get back to that alchemical element, or was there something in its formal properties that intrigued him? And Temkin, the, it was largely that here was this fellow who was nearby, who had this sheet metal workshop. And it was Lionel Prager. <laughs> Prager, yes. And Prager, right. And he, I think, in this in this material, certainly must have been thinking back to 1912, 13, 14, when in fact there was the sheet metal guitar. And the kind of cubist language makes this late return in his work because those sheet metal works are so full of the play with negative and positive space and solids and voids and perspectival tricks that really go back to what he was doing 50 years earlier. And the idea that a, a, a gesture like folding, right, can be used to create volume space and sculptural form is something that he, as Anne says, begins in the teens and then he just sort of runs with for this moment in the 60s. In, in the middle of using, or maybe kind of at the beginning middle of using sheet metal, Picasso in 1956 makes a series of wooden, of sculptures of bathers out of wood. Should we think of those pieces in the context of the sheet metal sculptures, or do you think they come from something else altogether? They're very much related in the sense that that last group of sculptures he's making are really planar, right? And And what you were saying about frontality holds true here, even though they're absolutely fascinating to look at from 360 degrees. And we are going to let our visitors do that with each and every work in the exhibition. There certainly is a facing front aspect to those bathers and a facing front aspect to um, some of those sheet metal figures, although by no means all. 
And it, yeah, it, it's a vocabulary now of planes that's very much the opposite of those big, robust, kind of hefty sculptures like the she-goat of the earlier 1950s. And finally, and I hope you'll each answer this, is there a, a, a find or a less famous work that each of you is particularly thrilled to have in the show? Because there are lots of things in perusing the catalog. And again, we're recording this while the show is being installed. That's really the reason for doing the exhibition, right? And the the joy of realizing that with Picasso, the most seemingly minor of objects can be as enthralling and as actually technically extraordinary as what we think of as the obvious masterpieces. That's That's so true of his sculpture. And I think it's one of the reasons that the sculpture is a very immediate kind of way to get into Picasso. Because the painting, let's face it, can be difficult, right? It, it, when you look at an analytic cubist painting of 1911, it is very hard without knowing the language of that kind of work to really relate to it. Um, it takes training. I think to engage with Picasso's sculpture in almost no cases requires some kind of training. He's so training you how to look at it by itself just being what it is. But also what ha to get back to the idea of, of the humble things or, or the things that certainly are not known in the world. I think the extreme example of that in the exhibition, although I wouldn't necessarily call it Anarmai's favorite, are these little pebbles that he turned into yeah. sculptures right after World War II when he's ready for the first time or able for the first time to travel out of Paris back down to the Riviera, which he loved so much. He finds these tiny little pebbles, you know, one inch at the most on the shore and then carves into them very deeply with a very sharp implement and makes these magical little things that he absolutely did consider sculptures. Yeah, so I think to keep, because I, I was thinking of those objects as Anne was talking and was thinking that for me, I suppose one of the ongoing surprises as we looked at it was the power of the small things, whether it's the pebbles or the little terracotta figurines, or even the absinthe glasses, MoMA has one. We've looked at it for years in our, our galleries, but to think about that, it's kind of the range of scale in Picasso's work, you know, back in what to saying it's, it's very accessible, it's accessible in its subject matter, it's accessible in its mode of realization. You don't have many questions in your mind when you look at it about how things are, are put together. There's that kind of immediacy. And then that it's accessible to in its relation to the human body. And I suppose that comes with the small works. Those are things that are so, so tactile, right? So, so immediate. You can sort of imagine the artist's hand in a very proximate way and that that carries out to the larger work. But of course, those are the sorts of things that aren't as familiar, the smaller objects, the pebbles, the tiny figurines, or seeing six absent classes together. That's not so familiar either. I'll throw one out that I'm particularly eager to see. It's the 1958 
sculpture titled Bird, yeah. of what appears to be um, a duck, and the legs are forks. Yes. Yes. And you get, and, and so the duck is completely flat, or the bird is mm -hmm. completely flat, and then you have the forks um, where the prongs are, you know, completely visible, and the prongs kind of double as a suggestion of webbed feet that mm -hmm. have that instead of being on the ground have been flattened mm -hmm. um, like the rest of the sculpture. It's a, it's a, a total Picasso moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Very true. Anne Umland and Anne Temkin, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you. Experience tomorrow's art history today for free and in a beautiful, intimate setting at Blapper Art Museum. On view this fall, did you know we taught them how to dance? The first solo museum exhibition for British-Nigerian artist Zina Sarawiwa, and a test of art's capacity to envision new concepts of environmentalism. Also on view, Time Image, an international group survey of temporal concerns in contemporary art. More at blafferartmuseum.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Pulitzer Arts Foundation curator Tamara Schenkenberg. She's joined the program twice to discuss Fred Sandback, 64 three-part pieces. You may recall this is the Sandback that is comprised of three lines of yarn stretched individually across three adjacent galleries at the Pulitzer, and that Sandback created the work to have 64 different permutations. Each week since early May, the Pulitzer has been realizing a different permutation of the work, and we've checked in with Schenkenberg twice to see how the piece is going. The show closes this weekend, so we thought it would be a good time to check in with her again. Tamara Schenkenberg, welcome back to the program. Thanks for talking to me again. We last spoke about this piece in June, so it's probably a good idea to start by asking you to remind listeners why this Fred Sandback is so unusual and your installation is so exceptional. Okay, so the, uh, the work we're showing is a series comprised of 64 sculptures and only one sculpture can be presented at the time. So each of the sculptures consists of three separate lines of yarn that are stretched individually across three adjoicing gallery spaces of equal size. And so what Sandbeck created is a sculpture in three parts with 64 possible permutations. And what we're doing at the Pulitzer is installing one sculpture for each week that we're open, open to the public. And the show is 20 weeks long, so when we end on September 12th, we will have presented 20 sculptures out of the possible 64. And the Pulitzer is free to visit, so people can walk downstairs and, and, and see the sculpture change, walk, walk along the corridor to the side of it and each week or every couple of weeks, see the piece be a different piece, be the same piece, be a different piece. Yeah, it's the same work. It's a series. But yes, each week we have a different sculpture for visitors to experience. And we have just expanded our galleries. And this work is installed in one of our new spaces that we're still discovering. So it's very exciting for me personally as a curator to how the space shifts and change according to the sculpture that's installed. And our visitors also can discover it fresh every week. So I should maybe mention that there's three lines of yarn across three spaces, but the lines vary in direction and in height. So per Sandbeck's instruction, the 
yarn can be installed directly on the floor, running across the room diagonally in two directions, or the line of yarn is installed 150 centimeters up, running across the room diagonally in two directions. So in total, there's four possible positions at which yarn can be installed within each of the three rooms. And so that's where the variation comes in, varying the heights of lines and the directions of the lines. So as we're taping this, you've cycled through almost all of the iterations you're, you're, that the Pulitzer will be doing of this piece. It, has the piece turned out to be what you thought it was when you conceived of doing this, or has it been different? Well, I mean, I certainly had some expectations, but this work has only been shown once in Munich. In Germany, right. In 1975, and I had never met anybody who saw the work at the time. Sandback passed away in 2003, so the, installing this sculpture series was an absolute process of discovery. And he, in the end, what the work has revealed itself to be is so much about movement and rhythm and different aspects contribute to that. So, for example, as I mentioned, the sculpture exists in multiple parts, which cannot be visualized at once. So you cannot experience the work passively. As a visitor, you have to walk across the length of the three rooms it's a spatial and temporal situation, and your pace dictates the experience. So there's movement that's really been built into the work itself. And then the lines create their own rhythm, depending on the permutation that is installed. The lines are either up or down. They forge ahead or slow things down. And then at the same time, we're deinstalling and installing a new permutation weekly, so there's movement that as well. And the rhythm, in addition, depends on whether you know, the, the sculptures, the three lines are parallel or you know, whether they converge or diverge. So that's been my takeaway from all of this, just how much movement rhythm have to do with this piece in addition to its spatial, temporal, perceptual qualities well. It's interesting to hear you use the word rhythm because I had had in my notes to ask you if the piece felt mathematical almost in the way the permutations happen and are are mixed up or if it felt like something other than math. So when you say rhythm, do you mean kind of like musical or? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, the work is very mathematical because if you do the math of, you know, four different ways in which the sculpture can be installed per each room, and you have three rooms, you know, times four times four times four is 64, so there's a math that's responsible how, to how the piece itself has been set up. But it does not feel uh, ordered and restrained in that way. So the rhythm, I feel, ha is more emotional and psychological. And the way you perceive the piece is, is very much playing with your sense of perception and how you read depth. So, yes, there's this um, underpinning of the work that is based on algebra, but the experience of it feels much more visceral uh, once you actually see it in action. Was any part of Sandback's idea to leave any evidence of the previous iterations in the gallery space? What do you mean? So as, as the Sandback gets changed, if you will, you have to move yarn, and you have to change where the yarn goes into a wall or the ground or what have you. 
Was any part of Sandback's idea for this piece to leave any evidence of where the piece had previously existed within a space? No, because there's no, the, the piece has no size. It's absolutely situational. So there are certain aspects of the work that are prescribed, such as the height and the direction of the wire, as well as the directive that there be three rooms of equal size. But this series, and perhaps most of Sandbach's work in general, can be interpreted as a score that the artist composed and then which the curator in turn is invited to play. And so there's a lot of options, a lot of room to play, but within the parameters that buys. So I feel like that's the that's what has out outlasted, and that's what's been a part of the piece that's inception. But I think it sort of ends there, and then there's all of these improvisations that one can make. So as you mentioned earlier, Sandback is no longer with us. He died 12 years ago. And, and he's always received a lot more attention and, frankly, affection, if that's the right word, in Europe than he has in the U.S. Did this piece or the process of researching it and, and realizing it teach you anything about him? And I guess one reason I ask is you were just talking about music and improvisation and rhythm. Was Were, were those things you, you knew about him and, and, and that he had an interest in in those ideas or no? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, he in one of the interviews, he sort of alludes to his works potentially functioning as scores. But I certainly did not know of this work until I was well deep into the research, and I think that has to do with the fact that it was only realized once, and so it's certainly not oh, um, oh, an installation that gets a lot of attention. But it certainly is a part of, of what he was interested in in the 1970s, so it's by no means completely overlooked. You know, in terms of his institutional profile, he gets a lot of attention in Europe. And I think that's true of a lot of minimalist and conceptual artists. And just as an example, he had an extensive survey in 2005 that traveled throughout Europe. And just last year, Peter Schwartz organized a traveling retrospective of his drawings. And if you take that and you, you know, compare, compare it to what's been happening in the States, you know, it, it's really a drastic difference. David Sverner has shown his work since, 19, or since 2003, I believe, but you know, there hasn't been anything in a non-commercial space since. And, you know, having spent time with this work and having immersed myself in Sandbach's um, universe, it's been such fun and privilege. And he's an artist whose work is deeply nuanced, uses simple means to use profound ideas, and, you know, serves uh, a serious regard from U.S. institutions. I think he's certainly overdue for a major retrospective in the States, and whoever takes it on hopefully soon will be deeply rewarded, so throwing down the gauntlet. So finally, one of the great and valuable things about the Pulitzer is that it often functions as a curatorial lab, if you will, and it certainly does here. I imagine that in doing this show, you've had an opportunity to think about how that is a useful thing for curators and historians and for art history itself, and I wonder kind of what about that you might have been thinking. Sure. Yes, we self-identify as a sanctuary and a laboratory. 
and our building was designed by Tadao Ando and the very contemplative, serene space. And we tried to display art in a way that does not overwhelm the viewer. We don't have any labels. We really work diligently at offering a very intimate and immediate encounter with the art. That's one side of it. The other side, the laboratory side, really allows you to take risks. And given that we're not an encyclopedic institution, I think, think we can be more nimble, take chance on works that perhaps bigger institutions aren't able to do their size and the demands staff and their resources. So I think in trying on so this really important work, we're really that function of the laboratory, and it's been extremely rewarding forward to you know, providing this as a model for that's that are of smaller size because encyclopedic institutions can offer certain experiences that we cannot and in turn as a smaller institution to play an important role in offering a different curatorial model. Tamara Schenkenberg, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.